Hello and welcome to this week's book club, where we're talking about A Midsummer Night's Dream. For some bizarre reason, I think this play tends to be the first introduction to Shakespeare for a lot of young people. On the surface, it's a witty comedy in which four people find their way into two couples and join the duke of their city in a big old happy wedding towards the end of the play. For all that, the stakes are crazily high from the very beginning. We meet Theseus, the Greek hero who defeated the Minotaur and escaped from the labyrinth, who has more recently vanquished the Amazons and taken their leader, Hippolyta, as his new queen. He even acknowledges that his amorous approach was violent. Hippolyta, I wooed thee with my sword, and won thy love doing thee injuries, but I will wed thee in another key, with pomp, with triumph, and with revelling. The plan for this pomp, triumph, and revelling is that all of Athens will have a big celebration to mark their wedding, including some entertainments. Perhaps it's worth bearing in mind that Athens is far more famous for tragedy than comedy. Before we meet any Athenian entertainers, mind you, we meet a very angry man called Aegeus, whose name is very similar to the father of Theseus, who gave his name to part of the Mediterranean Sea. The play's Aegeus is mad because his daughter wants to marry for love instead of the match her father has set up. A pair of star-crossed lovers defying their parents with their love. We've heard that story before, and we will again. Aegeus is invoking the ancient privilege of Athens, whereby a father can put his daughter to death for not doing what he wants. There is a gentler option available too. The daughter, Hermia, could alternatively become a nun. Faced with the coffin or the convent, Hermia decides to run away. She's in love with Lysander, and conveniently he has an aunt a little outside of Athens, to whose place they can elope. Meanwhile, Hermia has a friend called Helena. This poor girl is in love with a boy called Demetrius, and he used to be in love with her, but now he's pursuing Hermia, and Hermia's father Aegeus wants this match to happen. So there's plenty of angst very swiftly set up. The lovers tell Hermia of their plan to elope, and she tells Demetrius in the hope that this will make him fall back in love with her. Instead, of course, he will also head into the woods, chasing after Hermia, and perhaps her money or something, in the hope of getting her as well. While all of this is going on, we meet a merry band of Athenian commoners, whose names, unlike the lovers, are not even a little bit Greek. Bottom and Snug and Starveling and Peter Quince, not really Greek at all. They are trying to put a play together, since there's money to be earned if you happen to get picked to perform at the big fancy royal wedding, banquet, dinner, celebration party. This gang almost always steal the show. The setup is very recognisable, a bunch of actors nervously hearing who will play which part, and then arguing over what they do and do not want to do on stage. Bottom is one of the great roles for an actor to play an actor all the more humorously if the character isn't as good at acting as he thinks he is. This gang are also heading for the wood because there's such stiff competition for the gig and they don't want to have their devices discovered. These woods outside Athens, not that there ever really were any, are going to be very busy tonight. Apart from all of these runaways and thespians, there's also something of a fairy congress happening. Ill met by moonlight, Oberon and Titania, the king and queen of the fairies, have been consorting with Hippolyta and Theseus, respectively. 
They are also at loggerheads because Oberon has his eye on a pretty Indian boy that he wants to take from Titania. She's having none of it, and their spat is causing all kinds of havoc. Titania has an absolutely magnificent speech describing the damage. The time is out of joint, the seasons are upended. There's an awful lot of rhyming verse in the play thus far, predominantly for the lovers, and then Bottom's drama club speak in prose. So when Titania bursts into this very free, beautiful verse, it's quite a surprise. Oberon has been insisting that she's a rash wanton who has been cavorting with Theseus. She's having none of it. These are the forgeries of jealousy, and never since the middle summer's spring met we on hill, in dale, forest or mead, by paved fountain or by rushy brook, or in the beached margent of the sea, to dance our ringlets to the whistling wind, but with thy brawls thou hast disturbed our sport. Therefore the winds, piping to us in vain, as in revenge have sucked up from the sea contagious fogs, which falling in the land have every pelting river made so proud that they have overborne their continents. The ox hath therefore stretched his yoke in vain, the ploughman lost his sweat, and the green corn hath rotted ere his youth attained a beard. The fold stands empty in the drowned field, the crows are fatted with the murrian flock, the nine men's morris is filled up with mud, and the quaint mazes in the wanton green for lack of tread are undistinguishable. The human mortals want their winter here. No night is now with him or Carol blessed. Therefore the moon, the governess of floods, pale in her anger, washes all the air that rheumatic diseases do abound. And thorough this distemperature we see the seasons alter. Hoary-headed frosts, far in the fresh lap of the crimson rose, and on old Hyam's thin and icy crown, an odorous chaplet of sweet summer buds is as in mockery set. The spring, the summer, the childing autumn, angry winter change their wonted liveries, and the mazed world, by their increase, now knows not which is which. And this same progeny of evils comes from our debate, from our dissension. We are their parents and original. Oberon insists that if she'll just give up the boy, their quarrel will end. Again, she says no with another beautiful speech about the boy's mother, and she and her fairies leave. Oberon is furious, and decides to play a trick on her. This decision also leads to much of the madness that ensues throughout the play. Oberon knows of a particular plant that grows in a place where Cupid's arrow once hit the ground. This stuff is very powerful, and can cause a person to fall in love at first sight. Now, Helena has already told us that... Love looks not with the eyes, but with the mind, and therefore is winged Cupid painted blind. Turns out the eyes will be very important in this play after all. Oberon sends his sidekick Puck to find the flower. It's worth mentioning that Puck is not cute. Even if you've seen Mickey Rooney play him in the beautiful film from 1935, he shouldn't be cute. The first person who meets him in the play is absolutely terrified. Puck himself talks about all the mischief he can create, and he's also called a hobgoblin. Do not be fooled by depictions of him as a dorky acrobat who's trying to earn his fairy wings. This is a malevolent, powerful figure. In the play, Shakespeare doesn't make him particularly sexual, but Elizabethan audiences would have been well aware that this was a dark, very grown-up, dangerous power. 
Amazingly, Shakespeare has him promise that he will put a girdle around the earth in 40 minutes when he's going to get this flower. Centuries later, Yuri Gagarin's first orbit of the planet proved Shakespeare right. It took 47 minutes. Puck gets the flower, and Oberon dabs a little of it on Titania's eyes while she takes a fairy nap. While they're moving through the forest, Oberon sees Helena doggedly pursuing Demetrius. God love her, she is one of the most masochistic women in all of Shakespeare. As we'll also see in All's Well That Ends Well, Shakespeare has a particular thing about girls called Helen and just how much they're prepared to suffer and pursue for love. Demetrius is horrible to Helena, has no interest, but she will not be deterred. Oberon takes pity on her valiant efforts and tells Puck to dab some of the flowery potion on Demetrius so that he will love her back. Puck pucks it up and instead dabs Lysander, who is conveniently taking a nap elsewhere. Lysander wakes and falls madly in love with Helena, and then Demetrius does too. She then has a terrific aria of anger at the two of them, since she assumes that they are mocking her. Hermia had insisted that Lysander not lie too close to her on the ground, for fear of them getting too excited or compromising her virginity before they're married. Ironically, she has a terrible nightmare that is rife with sexual undertones, and then wakes to find that he's run off after Helena. She joins the conversation, and there's a huge fight. Done well, it's extremely funny, as the two girls take pot shots at each other while the two boys compete to protect Helena from the justly furious Hermia. While all of this is going on, our drama group, the Rude Mechanicals, are also in the forest to rehearse. They wander very close to Titania's flowery bed, and this is where Puck shows just how evil he can be. He spots Bottom and magically gives him an ass's head. Naturally enough, Bottom's colleagues are terrified and run away, and as Bottom sings to himself, he wakes Titania, already primed with the potion. The history of this play is riddled with paintings and images that show Titania gently caressing the donkey's head or tickling his ears and this kind of thing, but we can be under no illusion as to what they really do when they retire to her bower, not least since the donkey's sexual prowess was a common trope as far back as ancient Greece, where of course this play is set. Bear in mind as well that Theseus is the primary character we meet at the beginning of the play. Theseus, Minotaur, which had a bull's head instead of a donkey, of course, and that Minotaur was trapped in a maze. So, already within this play we have enforced chastity, a couple fighting over a beautiful boy, couples swapping partners with abandon, and now pseudo-bestiality. If I didn't already make this clear, this is not a play for children. Oberon eventually decides that Titania has suffered enough and wakes her up, although he does point out that she wasn't dreaming when she says, Methought I was enamoured of an ass. Puck is sent to torment all four lovers, chasing and confusing them through the labyrinth of this forest before neatly arranging them in a sleep and undoing the potion from Lysander. The two now happy couples are fast asleep the following morning when Theseus arrives, enjoying an early morning hunt before the nuptials. The youngsters all explain themselves, conveniently enough Aegeus has shown up too, and they do the best they can to explain why it's all all right all of a sudden, and it's agreed that a triple ceremony will take place. Perhaps a lesser playwright might have ended the play here. Comedies normally end with a wedding, we've got three of them, job done. If the play did end here, mind you, 
we would barely be out of the theatre before wondering who is likely to have a happy ending. Hermia has seen just how quickly Lysander changed his affections. Helena has been treated atrociously by Demetrius, so why would she now accept him? And Hippolyta has been barely given a word to say, so we have no idea how she might really feel about this marriage, if she even has a choice in the matter. Instead, we get the wedding and the performance by the now reunited mechanicals who have, of course, been chosen. Pyramus and Thisbe, the play they perform, is yet another story of young people separated by parental intervention. Due to bad timing and a misunderstanding, this time with a lion instead of a friar, Pyramus assumes Thisbe is dead and kills himself. Thisbe then has a fairly long speech, which is often an opportunity for a good actor to surprise an audience with real emotion. And then Thisbe also kills herself. This tragical mirth is amazingly funny. Yes, Shakespeare manages to make a double suicide so ridiculous that it's funny. And then the play ends with a dance. Oberon and Titania reappear to bless the house as everybody goes off to bed, and then Puck gets his beautiful epilogue. A persistent case has been made for this play having been first performed for an actual wedding. David Wiles has gone into great detail discussing the possibilities, first in his book Shakespeare's Almanac, and later in another essay contributed to a book about the play, edited by Harold Bloom. I quite enjoy the idea that Shakespeare might have written this piece for a wedding, particularly since he explodes every possible notion of love in the play. Romantic love, love at first sight, fidelity, elopement, and indeed appropriate sexual partners. Some have written that the piece is rife with elaborate references to other people. Whether we know who they might be doesn't really matter. Maybe Titania, the fairy queen, might be a homage to Queen Elizabeth. Maybe the jokes are all extremely specific to members of the wedding, and wouldn't even have worked when the piece was brought before the paying public in the theatre. Who knows? There's a long tradition of doubling actors in the play, so that Oberon and Titania are played by the same actors who play Theseus and Hippolyta. This makes sense, and Puck has a speech or two within the play that seem to be doing little but buying time while the actors are changing their costumes. The show has a big cast, so it's a brilliant opportunity for a company to show off, doubled or not. The doubling might even pay dividends for how the story is perceived. As Hermia says towards the end, Methinks I see these things with parted eye. If, for example, Puck is played by the same actor as Philostrate, who is stage-managing everything at the wedding, and Hippolyta's kind words to the actors are in the same voice as Bottom heard coming from Titania, we ourselves might start to be seduced by the flowery magic of this dream. There are far too many adaptations of the play to list. It has inspired music, opera, ballet, films and television, and of course, a huge number of stage performances. If you haven't managed to have a look at it this week, or indeed if you'd like to see even more of it, there is a treat in store for you, since the National Theatre Live YouTube broadcasts will continue with a production of the play from the Bridge Theatre in London this coming Thursday. Ordinarily, I don't mention time-specific news within the podcast, but since it really is midsummer this weekend, and we are going through this year 2020 with these podcasts as a hope to keep ourselves busy, it feels like an acceptable exception. Despite my comments that this really isn't a play for children, although there's even a version of it starring Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck, this is one of my favourite Shakespeare plays. 
It was the first bit of Shakespeare I ever directed, and I also got to direct a version of it when I did Purcell's opera The Fairy Queen a few years ago. It is quite a seductive piece for directors, since there are just so many things that might be addressed within the play. Peter Brook did perhaps the most revolutionary production of the 20th century by placing the whole thing in a brightly lit white box. Nina Gawa set it in a zen garden full of white sand. Julie Taymor put it on a dark, almost bare stage illuminated with gorgeous flowery projections. And Emma Rice crammed so much magic into her production at Shakespeare's Globe that it got her into terrible trouble. Like Hamlet, this is a play that has a play inside it. Even more than that, we get to see a theatre company at work. So theatre people love this play, and rightly too. Regardless of how nasty or sexy or shocking or silly or violent or hilarious the evening may be, Puck, with that devilish twinkle in his eye, gets to come out at the very end and give his terrific epilogue. When we go to the theatre, and when we go back when we can, we go to share a dream with the little magical community that forms only for the one performance we share together. It doesn't last, but that's okay, and Shakespeare knew it. What better way to wake up from this dream and end a play than this? If we shadows have offended, think but this and all is mended, that you have but slumbered here while these visions did appear, and this weak and idle theme no more yielding but a dream. Gentles, do not reprehend. If you pardon, we will mend. And as I am an honest puck, if we have unearned luck, now to escape the serpent's tongue, we will make amends ere long. Else the puck a liar call. So, good night unto you all. Give me your hands if we be friends, and Robin shall restore amends. For next week's podcast, we're going to move back towards Italy, where we'll look at the Merchant of Venice. I hope you'll join me then. <laughs>